0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you tuned in today. If you miss part of the interview, you can always find the whole conversation on my podcast. When the governor of Maine visited one of his state's islands in 1911, met the residents, saw where and how they lived, he told a local newspaper that the place should be burnt down. Clear it, he suggested, because, quote, we ought not to have such things near our front door. The island settlement wasn't in a strict sense near any of mainland Maine's front doors. It was a 42-acre island that floated in the New Meadows River where first Native Americans and then freed slaves, and then their descendants lived. And to this day, even as research into the island's history continues, prejudice about the people who live there indoors. Writer Paul Harding has set his new novel on Malaga Island in 1912, where the small community there faces destruction. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author and director of the MFA Program in Creative Writing at Stony Brook University. His new novel is titled This Other Eden, and he joins us from Long Island, New York. Paul, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Oh, thank you. It's a delight to be here talk with you.
0: You have vivid descriptions of the topography and the geography and the way the river laps at the shores of this island and the plants of the island. And I understand that you did some fly fishing in the summers in northern Maine. I'm interested in your very first encounter with the island. When did you become aware of it and learn about it?
1: i I uh, came upon uh, this the story of the settlement there um, entirely uh, by accident. I was um, in the middle of trying to kind of conjure a novel um, and as I do whenever I write a novel, I sort of a- anything that um, that um, uh, interests me, I kind of end up throwing into the manuscript and seeing what happens with it and I, so I was actually happened to be reading um, uh, um about the history of, of of um of labor unions <laughs> uh in, wow. in in the United States after af, uh, after the civil war um and one of the things that i find interesting so interesting about them is that they were some of the first United States institutions to kind of formally advocate for things like civil rights women's suffrage you know that sort of thing um so it, it just occurred to me um to wonder about or to, you know, I just found myself thinking, oh, there must have been all black communities after the Civil War. There must have been racially integrated communities. So I just Googled, you know, a couple of keywords, and lo and behold, all of these (laughs) stories about all these places, you know, all all around the country started coming up. And um, uh, pretty quickly, uh, the name Malaga Island came up, and, um, I was immediately interested because off the coast of Maine, um, and, uh, I write about Maine. Um, my interest in Maine comes from my, uh, you know, my, uh, my maternal grandparents both having grown up there and I've mm-hmm. gone there kind of every year for, for years, um, and then as I, as I read, uh, you know, the, the first article that I read was from Down East Magazine, I think from 1980. Um, <laughs> and it, it, one of the things it mentioned was that some of the islanders were um, committed to a place called the Main School for the Feeble-Minded, which is mm-hmm. spine chilling. Um, and uh, that that institution was had been a model for a fictionalized version of of, of that place that I, that I used in my uh, first novel Tinkers. Uh, there's a character who's going to be, it's it's, some threat of him being committed there. So that peaked, you know, that, 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 you know, got my curiosity going even more. And then I found out not long after that uh, to the month, I think that the Islanders were, um, uh, the folks were evicted there in the summer of 1912, um, at the same time the first international congress um, on eugenics was taking place mm-hmm. in London. So, you know, when you're a writer, you're looking for a book or you're, you're trying to find a subject, you know, and it's you know, kind of walking around like with a dowsing rod and, you know, give me a sign, <laughs> give me a sign. And uh, that just, the, all, that little constellation of those kind of connections um, just laid claim to my imagination, you know, just haunted me um so uh one of the things i did when i like the moment i realized i wanted to start trying to do some writing about that about that situation um or a situation similar to it i stopped reading about malaga island i stopped i didn't do any more research um because one thing that was clear to me from the very beginning was that uh, i, um, I had no organic connection to that community right and so I didn't think it, I didn't want to write a an historical novel per se about Malaga mm-hmm. Island. And I uh, certainly didn't want to write a nonfiction a book about it. Um, I, I just felt like that, that actual particular story and that history was kind of like not mine to write, but that essential plot, that essential story of just displacement seemed to seem something eternal and sort of central you know, to main, not not main history merely, but New England history, U.S. history, human history, you know, all the way from being displaced from Eden, you know, all the way up to the present. Right.
0: Well, uh, so uh, so this explanation is valuable. There are, I mean, you reading the novel inspired me to do some additional reading about mm-hmm. the island. Yeah. I mean, there you've drawn from a lot of the dimensions of what it was like for the community that settled there in 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 history you've drawn from that to create this community on this island in your novel that's fair to say Mm -hmm. isn't it
1: oh sure yeah 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 and some of the you know one of the things about the island that i found that i retained you know the, the general and generally and then Imagined a version of it for myself, but um, was that there was a school on the island, a small school, mm. and one of the things that really laid claim to my imagination were the the pictures, the photographs that accompanied this article, and um, one of them is is of the students from this school um, who uh, you know range in skin tone from you know uh, you know uh, from Caucasian to uh, you know uh, bl- black Afri- you know, African American, right. and that was just astonishing to me to see people together you know from that array of backgrounds and you know um and, and um and uh, and the school is actually um well regarded in the area there are actually um students that paid a modest tuition to to come to the school from surrounding really? um, communities huh. yeah um i didn't put that in the novel but again there's yeah there, so there are these kind of you know the, the shape is there but um I immediately, my, again, my imagination just, it was like catnip my imagination, you know, ran about. I was like, oh, this is like Noah's Ark, you know, and it's like the Pequod, the boat in Moby Dick, and it's kind of like the <laughs> I- island from the Tempest and Shakespeare. So I immediately knew that I wanted to kind of be, like, take, take the outlines of the story, but then fictionalize all the characters, then mm-hmm. turn Malga Island into what became Apple Island. Um, because I wanted to do things with the characters and their stories that that um, that uh, you know did, that that were had their own kind of imaginative kind of momentum and integrity and critical mass. Um, so that's what I did. I, I took advice from you know, Henry James, in one of his prefaces mm-hmm. says that you know whenever I get an idea for a story that has its germ in real in you know in fact in real life. I learned just enough to pique my curiosity, but not enough to satisfy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh,
0: you know, I I, re- I did think you were going to. When I asked you about how you encountered the island, I did think that you were going to say that when you began to read about it, and you, and you noted how unusual it was that native people. African Americans, you know, the descendants of Freeds, white Europeans, white mainlanders all live together. I I thought that was going to be the answer. Like, I I couldn't, in your voice, I could not imagine in the early 1900s that a community like this existed. And yes, the existence of all black communities, I actually just interviewed somebody who wrote a novel about one of them, Mm -hmm. was unusual. But yeah. this was really exceptional, wasn't it?
1: yeah, yeah, I, I mean, it was just astonishing, and so i mean as a again as a as a writer of fiction, there you know you see okay, it was a fact this existed um and then a lot of writing the book was just um imagining how that came to be and how it persisted, and then how um it was basically you know dismantled eventually um and I think that I think that's the fate of a lot of integrated communities is they are, they are then, you know, they're segregated. They're, they're dismantled.
0: I mean, that, that's the, that's the really intriguing thing that, and, and, and this is a question that I pondered through the whole novel. Is it the isolation and the fact that this community exists, even though they're not that far away from uh, the, you know, the mainland, is it the island that makes them kind of eccentric and strange, or are they strange and that's why they're on the island?
1: I, you know, yeah, that's the chicken or the egg kind of – that's the sort of question that I wanted to open up and just keep opening without, um, without um, you know, purporting to – give the reader an answer to tell the reader what to think about that. Um, but I think there is, you know, just literarily, poetically, there's something interesting about islands, right? And there's something mm-hmm. that feels sort of isolated about them. And I wanted to use that poetically, you know, and I wanted to um, uh, think about, you know, for, so for example, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about the, that population being marginalized. And I started thinking about like, on whose margins do they live? You know, if you're not, if you're (laughs) an Islander, the mainland is marginal to you. You know, we live on the mainland. You all live someplace, you know, and so just that idea of point of view and, and, you know, and, and when the point, the point of view moves around in the story, but whenever it's on the Island, the Islanders are just, they're just, you know husbands and wives and sons and daughters right, and cousins and right. they're just they're doing their thing they it's that's the needle is at zero that's 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 normal and then when the point of view moves into other kinds of texts like newspaper articles and letters about them and to kind of goes external, then the language about them starts to degrade them and objectify them um, and they become uh, you know, what, I remember some of the, a couple of headlines that I saw from uh, contemporary newspaper articles about about the Malga settlement, um, calling them uh, the queer islanders, mm-hmm. you know, the queer Islanders. Yeah. and just like queer to who? You know, queer means that you're you're queer away from some norm, right?
0: Mm-hmm. But to them,
1: they're not queer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it's, it's just, you know, meditating on like, just like even just that term queerness, you know, that that sort of thing. And I, it just seemed, it was just inexhaustible to me and irreducible. You know, and that's kind of something I'm always looking for as a writer is just, I'm not looking to explain anything. I'm not looking to answer anything or make a point. I'm just looking for these human experiences that are irreducible. And then my job is to describe them as precisely as possible.
0: It's clear that from those contemporary newspaper articles and from this community that you've imagined on your own fictional Island, that the sensibilities of the, the mainlanders are offended by the idea that there are people living together, not of the same race, not of the same background experience,
1: mm-hmm. I,
0: that was true in its day in in history. But it but you've also explored that in the novel, and I'd love to know how that how that was kind of a catalyst for the for the creation of what would happen to this community on the island. How you thought about it.
1: Yeah, it's just one of those things that just seems to be this like perennial human misadventure, you know, fear mm-hmm. of somebody other than yourself, you know, that just even that, you know, the idea of other, that, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, I, I teach the Old Testament a lot, you know, and I teach Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but the Old Testament, you know, one of the ideas that I'm most fascinated with is that, um, you know, the, the old religious version of it is, it's called I and thou, right, you know, um, mm-hmm. but, but this idea, that you have to, it's almost like you embody yourself, um, uh, you know, to the extent that you devote the greatest amount of courtesy and attention and solicitude for people other than yourself. You're sort of selfless mm-hmm. by kind of deferring to other and, 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 and dignifying and pl- giving courtesy to other people's humanity. Um, and that is kind of the, you know, the insistence of so much of the Old Testament, you know, and that comes out of, you know, I think you know, the, the kind of presumption or the observation, the fact that there is, you know, nothing easier, um, you know, damning somebody else in order to um, sort of uh, inflate your own self-worth is easier than tying your shoe, you know. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so this idea that... Um, um, uh, you know these people, you know, the so-called mainlanders would look at those folks on the island and just feel fear or just contempt, or you know, it's just uh, it just seemed like an, a quintessential human predicament and and tragedy as well.
0: And I I think it's right to say that both in your novel and in the at least reading about the real community. They didn't understand why they knew it. Right. I mean, there are members of that community in your novel that really, in fact, we're going to hear an excerpt, I think, where one of the people that lives there really understands how they're seen. Mm-hmm. But, um, but even in the real day. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And I, that was something I, you know, kind of you know sort of um explored the the range of that idea Mm -hmm. And, and and so that is something that you know my fictional version of it i had them on the island and i sort of made them probably a little bit more isolated than they were um in fact in history you know um so it's true in the novel as it were um partly because again i wanted there to be this kind of it was simultaneously a sanctuary but then it eventually became kind of like a holding pen or a prison you know right. but there's a sense of um I- isolation and um and w- one of the things i remember from like, one of the articles i read was um you know they came and they gave these people sort of as it were intelligence tests and they'd say you know they'd ask who mm-hmm. the president the, who, who's the president and like i don't <laughs> know who the president is <laughs> <laughs> they bank accounts or pay taxes so i i kind of used that poetically to you know to have them that, that you know that community is one that uh, you know just dramatically. What I did with it is I I gave it its own integrity because then it's when it, when that integrity is breached, you know you feel the, the 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 real sense of the loss of what was you know of of, of the integrity of that community. That's um, right. You know, but yeah, then there 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 is a you know one character, one of my favorite characters in the book, Esther Honey. Who um mm-hmm. the moment that this um mm-hmm. this uh, uh well meaning um white uh, teacher kind of semi missionary comes and d- ed does educate the children you know um but the minute she he sets foot on the island, she knows that um it, good, nothing good is going to come from it
0: you know just just to linger for a moment on what you're saying about perspective you're Reading the novel made me think about how – I don't think you have to be on an island to be less than aware of how you're seen in the world. I, I don't know how –
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: You, you see what I'm – saying? okay, good. Oh, Go ahead.
1: totally. totally. No, just – I mean <laughs> before each of our days is through today, we will say how is it that you do not see – how you are seen by others i think that's just that's just to me it's one of those mysteries of human consciousness you know, and just mm-hmm. where your awareness is and how you either habituate yourself deliberately or or you know unwittingly um, uh, you know but like yeah it's, some people just have very, very narrow bandwidths or they're preoccupied. I mean when I think about the characters in the version of, you know in the book you know, I think they're they're just trying to live their lives, you know, they're trying right, to, right. Trying to do, do their job and raise their children and eat, feed themselves and, you know, patch a hole in the roof and just stuff that people do. And they're sort of, you know, um, left unmolested by the greater, you know, the, the the greater machinery, you know, of the government, the culture, you know, that, that sort of thing.
0: You think about how I think many of us spend a lot of time in somewhat uh, protective delusion about how we're seen, because mm-hmm. what if we could really? What if? What if the superpower was you can read the impression of uh, of that people are having about you like instantly. Mm-hmm. I, you know, yeah. you'd shatter that delusion, right? I think the world right. would be yet an even more difficult place to be, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> I think so. And I, I actually think probably that if you really are sensitive, again, by by practice or haplessness, you know, you can tell the impression you're making on people. And I think a lot of times <laughs> I you're like, I don't, right. I'd prefer not to know. I'd prefer not to know <laughs> the impression, All right. you know, or, you know. um, yeah and that's interesting again there's that human awareness the senses you know what you dial into and what you kind of just sort of turn the volume down on right. um, is, and just as a writer that you know that's that that's something I'm always interested in because writing narrative fiction is you know narrative prose fiction in my case is um i'm just all I'm just totally interested in character and I'm just interested in you know, the experience of being a self, you know, like this is mysterious that we are these selves. Um, And I always want to fully immerse my reader in these characters' experiences, always starting with what does it sound like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? What does it feel? like? Describing what it is like, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and hopefully what you do is you make it rich enough so that the reader says...
0: And you know,
1: hopefully, is the ideal. Is that the reader says, "That's absolutely true. I felt that before. That's, that mm-hmm. strikes me as right. l- legitimate. That strikes me as as um, as true to true to true to at least part of my experience."
0: I mean that that's the for me the pleasure of fiction. There's a familiarity to it, but there's also mm-hmm. a sense of discovery in that oh, familiarity. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's, you know, kind of if I boiled it down, I'd say as a writer, what I want to give to my readers is my favorite experience um, as a reader myself, which is, you know, you finish Mm -hmm. a book or a chapter or a paragraph or even a well-turned sentence, and you just stop and you go, wow, that is absolutely true. I've always known that's true, but I've never seen anybody put it into words. Yeah. So it's recognition. I think that's what, you know, you try to make descriptions and, you know, in prose descriptions of experience that um, people will read and you try, you know, and, and, and have moments of recognition like, yeah, you know, af- it's uh, affirmative, you know, there's like affirmative. even if it's about something terrible, like, you know, bigotry or, you know, contempt or disdain or disrespect
0: I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with writer Paul Harding. His new novel is uh, titled The Other Eden, and we're talking about some of the parallels, but also the diversions, the imagined uh, license that Paul took uh, as he created an island in a river in Maine that housed a very unusual community of people and how... Um, frustrating and i guess offensive uh many of the mainlanders the people that lived on the mainland in maine found that he has drawn from uh contemporary uh reporting i guess journals some of the historical research that is going on about this island that it that did exist but he's also created his own world as fiction writers do again the novel is titled this other eden you know i don't want to miss something that you said a while back because it intrigues me. Did you, did you say that in teaching your MFA classes in creative writing, you draw, you teach the Old Testament a lot? That's I've never I, heard that before. Uh-
1: I teach seminars in it. You know, I do. I, so I basically teach, you know, fiction writing workshops in which we just look at the students work. Um, but then uh-huh. every uh, lately, the last three, two or three years, I've been A being between, um, uh, teaching seminars. Uh, uh, one semester I'll teach a, th- a seminar in the Old Testament and then the next I'll teach, um, Shakespeare. Uh, and the two wow. go hand in hand and they're very, you know, it's, it's, it, it, those things open up onto, you know, because we, we were as writers where well, I was thinking about influence and tradition and all this sort of stuff. And I'd read Shakespeare a bunch, you know, over the years. Mm-hmm. And then I you know, really started reading and, you know, thinking about the particularly the Old Testament, you know, um, and the way that's put together, it's a literary anthology, basically, and just – you know, it just, it just laid claim to me. It's just like, you know, the, the, just the way it's put together is just incredible and the writing and the, you know, the poetry and the lyricism. Um, but then I went back and read Shakespeare and it was like a revel, I was like, there is not a page of Shakespeare that doesn't have the Bible in it, you know? And then, <laughs> oh, and then I went wow. back and I reread Moby Dick and I was like, there's not a page of Moby <laughs> Dick that has, that doesn't, that doesn't have Shakespeare and the Old Testament in it you know and I started realizing wait a minute there's not a page of the old testament that doesn't have older greek i mean uh, older egyptian or babylonian cosmology in it yeah. so there's this beautiful kind of continuity and uh, carries forward and i you know i went back and read um you know faulkner faulkner's just all Old Testament stuff, you know. All of his novels mm-hmm. are named after, you know, Absalom, Absalom, go down Moses. Mm-hmm. But even the bear, you know, the bear in in the in the novella of the same name is like Moby Dick, the whale. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, and 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 Moby Dick the whale is the Leviathan from the Book of Job. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> I know. want me some of that. I love that. You know, I, <laughs> I, I want to write books where you, it's almost like a, a like a like a re, a relay of lenses or something, mm-hmm. you know, so that you can you can hear and you can see all of these different writers and their works of art. I mean, I just, you know, it's all very, very, just like informal personal like taste. But, uh, you know, I think of literary fiction as, you know, um, fiction that has been prompted by and is in conversation with other literature and other art, you You know, know, so I.
0: Paul, this completely explains. I kept, as I'm reading the novel, I'm thinking, you know, there's a fable kind of quality oh, absolutely. to. Yes? Okay, will, will oh, you talk oh, about yeah. that a bit?
1: Well, I just, you know, I wanted to be able to work with all sorts of different genres, but I did want it to be there's something mythic about it, something um, like folklore, folktales. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to be like a fable. I wanted it to have a kind of timeless or eternal. Quality to it, while at the same time having you know immediacy and vividness and all that sort of stuff. But there's something um, because it, there seems something kind of um, totemic or archetypal about that plot, about that story. This kind of mm-hmm. you know, you know the the uh, you know the Israelites b- being you know um, uh, displaced out of Egypt, you know, and then being exiled to Babylon, uh, being exiled from eden the garden of the garden of eden that Mm. sort of thing and just just people are always just being displaced it's just a it's it just so i felt like wow this is really something that you can hold on to and it will just keep it will just keep opening up um and so just taking that kind of trying to that that sense that timelessness you know a, a quality of timelessness to it that feels you know essentially human um uh and as old as humanity, but also as contemporary as, you know, you know, this morning.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a challenge, I would think in integrating a character like Zachary hand to God Proverbs, Mm -hmm. who lives in a hollow Oak tree (laughs) and carves uh, scenes from the Bible, you know, in the inner, in the inner bark of, Of this oak tree. And yet, you know, I I didn't feel like I was departing into the supernatural or, Mm -hmm. you know, into this. I I felt like this really uh, fit. Again, there was that kind of recognition experience in reading about this character in a place that had a lot of historical reference. To it, that—that's what I got curious about—is how you thought about, you know, bringing in this kind of fable, uh, maybe supernatural isn't the right idea yeah, or it. right word, but you know, into um, kind of this hard and fast place that I could touch and feel.
1: Yeah, I think there's also, I, well, you want to have a, a range and you want to have like a multivalent kind of, you know, um, there are, are layers that are more kind of tall tale or folklorist, you know, they're not meant they to be taken literally, it's the spirit of the thing. And then there's mm-hmm. that kind of hard kind of historical kind of fact. And I wanted to be able to have a range of that and be able to kind of move around. It's almost like moving around different keys or tempos or whatever in a piece of music. Um, just because it, it's, I like to do that. I like to write in different voices. I like to sort of move the range and the register, and I think any book uh, or what I, you know, again, it's a a, a platonic ideal I shoot for um, is uh, you know that 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 this book has its own internal realism. You know, and that realism That's is right. consistent through the book, but that realism, I mean, I always, you know, I hate to be argumentative to people, but, you know, when I, like, whenever I hear the term magical realism, it makes me cringe, because I'm like, whose <laughs> realism? One person's magic is another person's, like, daily, you know, perspective on things. It's, it's something kind of um, condescending about it. but. So I wanted there to be that integrity, and I really liked the idea that there were different, again, bandwidths that these people, Mm -hmm. the various people are allowed. They are allowed their own. um, There's another character in the book, a minor character. Her name is Rabbit Marks, and she's this sort of like little spirit, like I thought of her as like a little like like one of the little spirits who are on the island in the Tempest. She's sort of like this mm. um, almost little <laughs> ma- semi-magical kind of mascot who just kind of like comes into the, our dimension kind of. And I didn't overdetermine, it. I don't ask the reader to believe anything, you know, but she just seemed, you know, she seemed. Um,
0: Otherworldly she seemed a, 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 in a way. Yeah,
1: and an essential part yeah. of the integrity of the whole kind of a whole piece. And so I just love that. I love the idea that something kind of magical and otherworldly is floating through something that is otherwise very worldly. I, 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 think, I think those different orders of reality are continually commingling within our own minds and thoughts and imaginations. Absolutely. You know? I mean,
0: you know, I, I read Isabella Yende for this. Oh, yeah. I never oh, feel, right, I never feel uh, a wrong note when she's right. bringing in, exactly, you know, for lack of a better word, the magic, the mm-hmm. other worldliness, and in, into, you know, the world of the novel.
1: Yeah. 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 She's a master at that. And I think that, again, that's the thing is, as a writer, you think, geez, I want to try to do the cool stuff that she does. <laughs> you know, and, you know, that yeah. literally, it's just like that. Like, oh, when Fokker does that, and when Sarah Ornn Jewett did that in the country, yeah. at the points at first. And, and I think, you know, part of the fun of it is you learn, one of the ways you learn how to do that is that you don't blink. You don't ask mm-hmm. the reader to believe It's just true. Mm-hmm. It's just a given. That's one of the cool things about making the world of a novel is that um, it, it's when the reader comes in, there are givens that may be surprising to first learn about, but then the reader habituates to them. As mm-hmm. long as you're consistent and you don't jerk the reader around or betray their trust, You know, I I mean, that's one of the things I always want, too, is just I I want to write a book that any reader in the world, you know, (laughs) ideally, again, can go through and finish the book and say, you know, I I, that novel um, earned my trust. That was, you know, that novel respected me. It trusted me. It was courteous to me. And it lit my brain up like a filament in a light bulb. (laughs) You know, I just want (laughs) to, you know, like turn people on you know like you know, like those old those old anti-drug ads it's like the 80s where they'd have the frying pan <laughs> this is your brain on drugs i think of like this is your brain on art you know and i want to light That's your great. head up the way that my favorite <laughs> books light my head up
0: you know that might be one of the most surprising things a writer has said in any interview that i've done but i love it it's <laughs> no, really it's good
1: these very modest um, origins
0: Right. Uh, So you made a passing reference a while back about how there are – the parallel of creating this world on this island and the reality of the first International Congress on eugenics is taking place in London, England. Oh, my gosh. This was such – I've read about this, but even the detail that you were putting into some of these short – what um, nonfiction elements of it were really revealing to me. Is it, is it really true that the son of Charles Darwin was kind of leading the conference or one of the key speakers? As
1: conference. I, as I recall, yes, <laughs> this is one of the crazy things about, you oh know, writing, f- writing fiction is like, I forget sometimes like, is that true? Or did I make that up? You know, you, they get so cl- but I'm, I'm quite sure that that's actually the case. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the tenor of those, the, the, the kind of would be excerpts from like the proceedings um, that mm-hmm. I use, or, you know, they're, they're, they're paraphrases. They're my own kind of embellished or whatever versions of, you know, the sentiment is there. You know, I didn't quote them in letter, in letter but I, I, you know, I c- captured the spirit of the, you know, mm-hmm. the, ten- the tenor of the conversation that was going on there. And it's just, you know, grotesque.
0: I mean, it, and that Darwin's son was involved. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll just read a little bit of this so that our listeners know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You've written, again, this does not come from some historical document, but it... Represents,
1: um, of so the happening. idiom or genre, yeah, yeah. All
0: right. In his opening remarks, Major Leonard Darwin, son of the famous Charles Darwin, spoke of the dangers of interfering with nature's ways. He said, "All gathered must pledge aloud that to give themselves the satisfaction of succoring their neighbor in distress, without at the same time considering the effects likely to be produced by their charity." On future generations was to say the least weakness and folly. So, w- what were you representing there that Darwin believed and that was being said at the at this Congress?
1: Yeah, well, it's basically it's the exact opposite of what you would find in the Bible. So, you know that you know you you you, you know, somebody, if your if your brother or sister has fallen in the ditch, you help them up. And their their idea is that you You cull the herd, and so you do, you don't help the limping gazelle <laughs> you know you do, there's this this ruthlessness to it of um just this idea that idea of fitness um and we get to decide you know um who is fit what fitness what what constitutes fitness you know the you in eugenics, the good part of genetics as we get to decide what that is, and anything mm-hmm. that is queer or you know you know queers from that norm. Um, should be culled, should be, you know, selected, you know, um, should be deselected. And it's just this, it's this kind of, yeah, it's like the, it's like the, you know, the, 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 you know, the master race kind of stuff. It's really, really crazy. And it's, you know, it's, again, it's that it, 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 to me, um, it's again this, this. It's this objectification of human experience. It's this reducing it to the measurement of your skull and you know numbers and it's it it quantifies something which cannot be actually quantified. You know the value of human beings is qualitative. It's not quantitative, um, but they convert it into that, and it's just dehumanizing. And the, the idea in itself is is um, dehumanizing i i feel
0: i mean do you in reading about this it appears there were a lot of people in in western civilization who believed this stuff right this was not some you know kind of fringe belief that never broke out of you know a small group of people right
1: absolutely yeah yeah i mean one of the other things i mean it's 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 um Again, you just sort of, as a writer, you use these novels to sort of think, you know, to just ponder stuff that's, you know, that, that lays claim to your imagination. So this was, you know, right, like right now, it, we're still in this kind of science versus religion sort of thing, right? And you have, mm-hmm. you know, you put the sign out in front of your house that says, I believe in science, which is weird because that turns science into a metaphysics. You know, it's just weird. <laughs> it right. cancels the spirit of science, you know. Um, and, I, and so, but that race in itself, we all know, is just a specious scientific, you know, it was presented as a scientific fact, mm-hmm. you know, and so the authority or the imprimatur of science, you slap science on it, and you're supposed to believe it, you know, that sort of, and so, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm just fascinated with the idea, you know, that science and religion are both idioms. Of humans, mm. uh, human expression and human exploration of humanity and its place in the universe and reality, and as human artifacts, science and religion are both equally vulnerable to abuse and misadventure, which is to say, utterly, you know. And so, watching science get, you know, or te- the same old mischief, the same old human mischief. You know, is is sort of excused by you slap science on it mm-hmm. the same way that you slap <laughs> re- religious authority on it. You know, right? right. You know, uh, um, I, you know, and that that actually, just personally, that just went back to, uh, I I grew up sort of not having nothing to do with religion and not antagonistic, just just didn't, you know, wasn't in my family. But then when mm-hmm. I finally you know read the Old Testament and then you know thought about its reputation, one thing I discovered is its detractors. And it's, um, and it's, and it's, um, and it's, and it's, uh, um, adherence. like, one thing that you can count is that nobody's read the thing, you know, but it, it was just so strange because, uh, you know, I did, you know, uh, you know, I was deeply aware of this kind of censorship, which is, you know, don't, don't open that Bible. You'll get a mm. case of the stupids, you know, and I was like, that can't <laughs> be true. And I, and I was just like, this is the most extraordinary piece of literature I've ever read. And that's not, you know, if people are had spiritual religious, you know, nothing about the bible being written in the idiom of human literature degrades its sacred or holy or whatever whatever people it's just the way it's put together you know it's, it is literature it's not the bible as literature it is literature but you know so it was just interesting it was i, I always like it when i catch myself presuming something you know very fundamental mm-hmm. about the world and that's wrong you know or, <laughs> or or i catch like i haven't even thought about that for myself so I'm going to read the Bible mm-hmm. for myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, and so, so yeah, yeah, and so to go back to the science and the eugenics, it's just, you know, I, I think it, certainly within the last year or two, I can't remember, but um, you know, I'm kind of like an armchair science junkie, you know, so I subscribe mm-hmm. to nature and yeah. science and this. And there was a, there was an article in one of those two magazines re- recently about, um, you know, how there was like for a while there was this idea of the the gay gene, right? Yeah. and you know, everybody's yeah. like, "Oh, thank God, that's over with." You know, but there's actually a serious. There's an article, a primary source article, in one of those, one of those magazines in the last couple of years about. Well, now, well, we're, we have a much more sophisticated understanding, it. it's actually a complex or a suite of genes. But it's the same. It's the same terrible. I just like somebody paid for that. Like somebody, <laughs> p- n- many people, and lots of money were devoted to just trying to you know just trying to trace that you know trying to trace homosexuality genetics it's it's like oh my god we haven't you know so much for progress (laughs) it's it's, it's, it's so terrible uh
0: i'd like you to read an excerpt of the novel and i chose this because again i love the voice of esther honey and now i hear that she's one of your favorite characters too um she has, we should say that it's in a part of the novel where this delegation of the governor and these do, self-appointed do-gooders and journalists have come to the island in 1911 to see for themselves what this is all about. And... um Esther Honey has, as the community has observed, this. What what else do you want to add, Paul? Before we
1: hear, I it? I, I think that's that's a, that, that sets it up well. I just uh, you know, Esther knows her Bible and she knows her Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So some some sort of this some biblical stuff in this. That um, but yeah, I you know I yeah, I have a great great love for her. Um, and uh, it, when it says that she's smoking, she's, I, she smokes um, mugwort weed out of a clay pipe you know which that's true that that is factual that's something you can't is do it oh yeah, yeah 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 uh, you know so i just love this idea of her sitting there smoking her pipe and, you know that sort of thing um but yeah i th- no i think that's i think that that sets it up i'll be happy to read right, it um, right ahead uh, esther sat in her chair smoking watching her dra- granddaughters come across the channel and the dog take one of them by the scruff and her grandson run down to the beach and meet them and help them with their baskets and probably tease them about getting caught behind the tide. He was so good to them, and they were good to him. Love, pure and simple. None of them gave a thought yet to what people beyond the island saw as their polluted blood. Even after that shameful visit from those doctors. Soon enough, she thought, soon enough, Pharaoh will come after us like he always does. She thought of the Hebrews leaving Egypt, Pharaoh's army at their heels. She thought of Patience Honey's, that's her great-grandmother. She thought of Patience Honey's vision in the middle of that hurricane, of Moses parting the sea. And she thought about the Hebrews moving from place to place through the wilderness 40 times over rivers and wastelands and mountains and deserts, which was what she felt more and more the Apple Islanders were on the brink of having to do themselves. She tried to name for herself in order the places where the Israelites had camped, a list she'd been able to recite as a girl, Sukkoth, Ethan, Migdal, Mara, Elim, with 12 fountains and 70 date trees, she remembered, but she got muddled after Rephidim, where there was no water. As permanent as Apple Island had seemed, if you sat back and thought about it, it really was just another encampment made then struck in endless flight from the egyptians the assyrians babylon and the rest the kings and marching armies and poking and prodding doctors of the world hmm.
0: writer paul harding reading an excerpt from his new novel this other eden i love that part i chose that because as you say we get a depth of or we get a sense of the depth of her knowledge about the bible and shakespeare and her wisdom right she is for all of this supposed isolation that the people on the mainland think have made them queer in the in the parlance of the day this woman is probably more knowledgeable than most of the people that came in this self-appointed do-gooders delegation right she understands herself and the world
1: yeah, she's a, she's a wise, wise woman, and she's um, I, I, trolling around as I do in Shakespeare and the Old Testament and all these sorts of things. you know, the idea of prophecy always kind of is interesting to me. And one of the qualities that I sort of feel is um, is kind of a hallmark of the prophets in the Old Testament, is that, they're, that being a pro- the quality of prophecy is not so much that you can tell the future. It's that you see the present clearly and you speak truth mm. to power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the idea that, if you know, prophets know where it's at and they say where it's at. And they are often quite, you know, <laughs> you know they're unpopular characters. Um, but and then the idea that um, if you know where it's at, it's no mystery where it's going to go. You know, you could tell the future. She sees the future because it's, she sees clearly kind of what these um, these intrusions into their community um, uh, uh, mean for mean for their their future, and she's great. I, you know, I, I wanted to, um, and again, this is these are just these weird little anecdotal personal things. But one of the things is, I, I, is a, there was a character in Tinkers, in the Tinkers about kind of like another family that's kind of is broken You're- apart.
0: Yes, your Pulitzer Prize winning novel.
1: Uh-huh. That first novel, yeah. And I just, I really loved the mother in that book, but I couldn't quite get her into the book as much as I wanted to without it kind of setting the rest of the story off axis. And I was like, I, I need to find, you know, I, I've got to find a character that I can, you know, really <laughs> open up. that. And um, and with Esther, too, I was thinking very much, well, you know, a, talking about the Old Testament Shakespeare, but there's a million books and, you know, different, paintings and songs and stuff that I, but one of the real kind of like guiding lights to inspirations for the book um, was uh, Sarah Orne Jewett's novel, the country of the pointed furs. Um, hmm. uh, and, um, and that is about a kind of, you know, um, kind of impoverished Maine fishing village. And it's all, basically, it's all, it's just populated by women, you know, cause all the men were, you know, died at sea or whatever, you know, this kind of, and so I just really love this idea of, um, yeah, this woman who's she's kind of the matriarch, you know, it's kind of a matriarchy. She's sort of and the the women generally in my book, you know, are in the book in the novel version are are kind of running the show. They're taking care yeah. of all the kids and the, the the men are kind of like off doing their own thing or they're or they're sort of <laughs> o- right. old they're kind of ornamental, you know. And the women actually take care of business. And she's right. brilliant and I just, you know, I I wanted to Uh, You know, I wanted to just have her know her Bible and know her Shakespeare and be able to have these really cool conferences and have those at her disposal for triangulating what was going on in the present.
0: Okay, so while we're talking about matriarchs, the, the book is dedicated to For My Wonderful Mother Who Made Reading Irresistible. How'd she do that?
1: She just, I, I I never, ever, I have no memories that are that are before being read to by my mother when I was a really little kid. And we always went to the local library, just like, I, I can't, you have know, books for two weeks or whatever. Whenever the books were due, we'd always go and she, she'd take us to the library and we were just let loose and we could just take out any book that we wanted. And we could, you know, eventually I could just read them, but, you know, she would read, she would read them to us and just... Again this is your brain on books. this is your brain on art. you know it just it was it's just such a formative and normative um, experience, and was always always, always a sanctuary refuge, you know. and um, and then, and then it, also, it also became you know not a, you know Flannery O'Connor talking somewhere about like, oh, books are not an escape. they're actually a you know a plunge right into the real world, mm-hmm. but but that that medium, the medium of art. And the medium of literature, um, it makes, as I'm talking, it makes me think of uh, something that Italo Calvino says in, somewhere in one of his essays about art or literature being kind of like Perseus and Medusa. You know, if you, if you, if you look at reality straight on, unmediated, it's so, aston- you, you know, that's what the word astonished means, right? You'll be turned to stone. You just can't bear it; it's just too. But if you look at it through the mirror, say of art, in his metaphor, you can you can see it, and you can negotiate it. You can look at the horror um, without perishing, Um, and so that's what I came to think of of art. So it's 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 simultaneously a refuge away from the world in some ways, but it's also a means through which you can engage it and sort of survive.
0: Your mother must have been. Oh my gosh! So, maybe astonished and very, very proud when your first novel won the Pulitzer Prize.
1: That's a that's extraordinary. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It, just, it was so cool. One of the things about the, you know, that book winning the Pulitzer is you know it's a small independent press, etc. And it was just it was really the book had a good story with it, and so it was really mm-hmm. cool because I felt like I, I I got to just be the ambassador for a whole bunch of people that were, you know, that just helped the book along when it was, there, there was no, re- no financial or any other motive for doing so. Um, <laughs> and it's just it's just cool. It's cool to be able to sort of like have, you know, I'd like to say I know a guy who won the Pulitzer Prize. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, it's just kind of you do neat. know it's, a guy who did I, I, you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's really it's really cool. I do have to tell people there's no downside to winning the Pulitzer Prize. That's you know? <laughs> glad to it's hear. It's quite it. wonderful. It's quite wonderful. Yeah.
0: I-, I wondered if you read fiction when you're writing fiction whether you're oh, able to yeah, do that. that. Do you?
1: I, okay. I love that question because my answer is always absolutely. And <laughs> I throw everything I like into my book. <laughs> you know, no, really? You know? I, I, oh, really? Well, I'm a magpie. Done. You know, mostly what I, you know, one thing is that I read um, mostly kind of older, older, older stuff. Just, I don't know why you know, just like it's been around. So that must mean it's stood the test. But um But, no, that idea, again, of just luxuriating in and just, like, being totally clear and open about, like, the the privilege of influence, Mm
0: -hmm. you know.
1: I I love, you know, the the writers I love, I love, and I want people to, you know, recognize that I, I, you know, I'm deliberately trying to place myself in those traditions, you know. Um, And uh, um, uh, so, yeah, Absolutely. I, I, well, I love. You, oh, go ahead.
0: Do you remember? Do you remember what you were reading when you were writing this other Eden?
1: Um, oh, sure. Well, I was you know, te- teaching the Old Testament, teaching Shakespeare. Um, I'm always I, now. I think one of the things is that now I do as much, if not more rereading than I do new reading. Um, when people did. ask me, who, wow. who are the contemporary authors you read? And I realize they're my students mostly, you know, so busy with that, but that's cool. You know, it's really, really, that's, you know, that's gratifying. Um, and now there's just so many books that come out. I used to work in bookstores and I I read everything as it came out and now it's just so kind of overwhelming, but, um, Mm -hmm. geez, I don't know. I, it's, it's hard to say. Um, um, I, I, you know it's one of those things if if we started talking about any author or something I'd be like, oh, yeah, I read that person, but I can't remember chronologically what I <laughs> read and when I read it or, you know, but you know I'm always rereading Faulkner i'm always rereading tony Morrison I'm always rereading you know um, uh, um uh, Calvino and Faulkner, and yeah, yeah, you know, just in my personal little John Cheever, I still love John Cheever um I, yeah, a huge rep- you know this large kind of I think of them as like my aunties and my uncles, mm-hmm. you know, I just like Uncle yeah. Herman Melville, you know, that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> you know, whenever I interview a, a writer who is also a teacher, I'm always interested in what your students, their students are writing about today. I mean, what what activates the imaginations of your students today? and And is it much different than what you know, catalyzed your own writing in, in your day as a student.
1: I, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the great – I just had my first workshop of the semester last night with 13 oh, students. So
0: this is and good timing.
1: Yeah, because yeah, it's the class where I you – know, let's go around and tell us what you're – you know, kind of give us a sense of what you're working on. And it was everything it's just so cool like anything from like oh i'm kind of doing a neo-noir western you know to you know i'm doing a family saga multi-generation family saga i as one person student who's i'm kind of doing a hybrid memoir that has um that has photographs and poems and prose and all of it is Mm -hmm. you know i feel like my job as a writing teacher i would say to my students is my job is to help you have your cake and eat it too You know, we presume that you can do anything, and then it's just a matter of how to make it work, you know. Um, And that's I just spend time just, you know, looking at each student's work and trying to think, you know, what terms does it seek for itself? Like, if this was a perfect version of what I feel like it wants to be, what would that look like? And kind of help them think about that and write right towards that. I think there's way more freedom now in the, in the, in the workshops. I was actually very sort of, um, you know, when I was getting my MFA um, I was writing kind of like what, you know, wild stuff like, you know, (laughs) like what I've published. But um, I just remember sitting in some workshops and people sort of saying, this isn't realism. (laughs) <laughs> I <feel> like like <laughs> Yeah, that's not helpful. That's just that's true, you know. Um and I think when yeah. I was there, you know, when I was at an MFA, it was there still was a kind of prevailing aesthetic that for its proximity was not seen as one of many. It was like we finally have learned how to write and um so it was Saint Raymond Carver but you know? oh, oh, yeah. it took me years to you know not resent him and you know sort of you know <laughs> on principle say i I hate raymond carver and then, of course i went back and i was like oh no he's absolutely you know he's good he's absolutely a world-class even though everybody says he is you know that kind of thing right. but it was this this sort of like you know the kind of flat photorealistic kind of whatever and i was just writing these you know, this crazy kind of um I don't know. Just I was way more influenced by the so-called magical realists. I really was. Mm-hmm. The thing that really blew me away about them was, uh, was really like if you read Carlos Fuentes and Julio Cortazar and Marquez, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example. Mm-hmm. One of the things I loved about their books is they used each other's characters. You know, wow. it's a it'd be reading a uh, Fuente's novel, and suddenly one of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's characters walks by in the background. You go, "I know that guy. <laughs> I re- I wrote, I, re- I read the book about him." And suddenly no, makes I didn't the, realize that <laughs> it's it suddenly makes the book that you're reading much bigger. It's connected yeah. to, and that's and that that's why you know, my, the three novels I've published all overlap in certain ways. They take place in the you know, some of them take place in the same locations, but in different times. Um, and just that pleasure of, you know, nobody will miss it if they don't read the book all the books. But if you have read the books, you say, I've been here before, I recognize this. And even that's just a way of making the world of the novel feel bigger than the actual single book that you have in your hand.
0: Paul Harding is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He's the director of the MFA program in creative writing at Stony Brook University. And the novel that we've been talking about this hour is called This Other Eden. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you for such a wide-ranging conversation.
1: Well, thank you. It was a great, great pleasure speaking with you.